Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. I want to let you know that Rick has a new podcast called Tetragrammaton. After about four to five years of recording Broken Record, Rick decided he wanted to talk to more than just musicians. So on his new podcast, he'll be talking to actors, directors, wrestlers, business people, anyone that Rick finds interesting. So make sure to subscribe to Tetragrammaton wherever you listen to podcasts. Today we have the second part of Rick Rubin's conversation with legendary singer-songwriter Graham Nash. We dropped part one a couple weeks ago, so definitely go check that out if you haven't already. On today's episode, Graham tells Rick about the time the Grateful Dead were recording next to CSN and how Jerry Garcia improvised a near-perfect pedal steel solo on Teach Your Children. Graham also describes a bizarre encounter with a judge who sentenced his father to prison and shares the inspiration behind his upcoming solo album, Now. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's part two of Rick Rubin's conversation with Graham Nash. They start off with Graham talking about how the classic CSN song, Our House, came to be. Can we talk about some of the other songs that you've written just to sure. talk about how, they've, how they came to pass? Sure. Our House. I'd taken Joni to a, a breakfast at Arts Deli on, on Ventura Boulevard in Los Angeles. Uh, it's, a, it's a famous deli because the food's great. And we had a nice uh, breakfast. It was the tail end of winter. It was a shitty day. It was miserable, it went, and it was cold and uh, just not, not a nice day. So we finished breakfast, and we leave Arts Deli, and we're walking towards uh, the parking lot where Joan had parked her car, and we saw an antique store, and, of course, we're, we're looking in the window. I, 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 like, to, I like to see 
stuff that people have made and said, you know, isn't this fantastic? And a hundred years later, it's covered in dust in some weird store. Anyway, uh, Joni saw a a vase that she liked. Uh, Very simple, uh, about 10 inches high, had some hand-painted flowers around the, the top edge. It was beautiful and it was reasonably priced, so she bought it. And as I said, uh, it was a miserable day. So we get in Joan's car and we drive down to the house in Laurel Canyon and uh, go through the front door. And I I said, hey, Joan, why don't I light a fire and you put some flowers in that vase that you just bought today? I'm a musician. How can I not follow that? How can I not go, wait a second? That's an interesting phrase. I'll finish this. And uh, it, it only took maybe an hour and 20 minutes to finish unbelievable yeah it speaks to the as an artist you being aware at all times looking for opportunities to turn real life into the art that you make that's what i'm trying to do yeah you didn't sit down to write a song you said something offhanded recognized hmm that sounds like something right and you followed up, which is another part of it, because both you have to have the the awareness to recognize it and then the discipline to not do what you were planning to do, right. <laughs> but sit down and, play. and commit to, to doing this thing. And don't forget, you have to add something to that. Yes. I'm living in a house with a brilliant writer. Yes. Who normally is at the piano. And I always gave her the space. To, to write, always, yes. always encouraged her to, to write. I would go on long walks and she'd write, you know. But this time she wasn't at the piano. She was actually in the garden looking for flowers to put in the vase. So I had an hour to, uh, to write it. Amazing. Is that the only time you've been in a relationship with another writer? Uh, n- not quite. I spent a couple of years with Rita Coolidge. Oh, beautiful. And, and Rita was, was a writer, and she actually wrote the, uh, that strange piano change in Layla. Wow. And Interesting. Uh, unfortunately, her boyfriend, Jim Gordon, said he'd written it. Wow. Can you imagine how much money that Rita could have made Yeah. from Layla? I'm just curious about this. Was there any sense of competition living with a great artist? <laughs> Not at all. There was no way. I recognized the genius of, of Johnny in those days, and uh, I would never get in the way. Yeah, it's just a fan. You were a fan, and she, hopefully she was a fan of yours. I don't know that, but she was at least a fan of yours as a human I, being. I don't think she, that we could have spent the time that we did together had she not at least recognized that I was a decent writer, you know. <laughs> okay, how about um, Carrie Ann? Ah, Carrie Ann was a Holly song that started out by Tony Hicks, I think. And uh, it turned into a song that we had written about Marianne Faithful. Mm. And we didn't have the balls to uh, call it Hey Marianne. And we were trying to come up with a, a girl's name that would disguise the fact that it was about Marianne Faithful. And we came up with the, with, with the title Carrie Ann. Had it been called Marianne, in that moment in time, would everyone have said, oh, that's Marion Faithful, or not necessarily? They would have known. She was quite famous at that point because she was with Mick and Keith 
you know, That's and uh, had done all all the being busted uh, naked, you know, a lot, you know, all the stuff that, that unfortunately Marianne went in her life. But uh, she is a brilliant writer, Marianne. She really is. Marrakesh Express. I'd taken a vacation uh, from the Hollies in 1966, and I'd heard stories of the American beat poets going down to this place called Marrakesh and smoking a lot of dope and writing poetry and all the stuff they got up to. And I, I, I kind of, I thought, well, it's an interesting idea. And, and so because I had a vacation, my wife and I uh, at the time flew to uh, Casablanca and walked around Casablanca. It was a phenomenal place. And then we took a train going south to Marrakesh. I was in a first-class compartment with two older American ladies who had their uh, grey hair dyed blue, which uh, was kind of shocking uh, to me at that time. Yes. And I, I left uh, the first-class compartment and I, I go to the third-class compartment and, and that's where... Uh, that's where almost it was like Snoop Dogg was having a party there. You know, it, you know, there was <laughs> dogs and pigs and chickens all walking around, all, all, and people pouring mint tea from like four feet in the air into this small cup and not spilling a drop. It was amazing. Uh, but that's where Marrakesh Express was born. And I just found my original lyrics, which, oh, which, uh, which I'm happy about. Fantastic. So did it start, do you remember if it started with lyrics first or just the title? I didn't get to the title until once again at the end of the first chorus. <laughs> My memory of it is that it all happened at the same time. Me... Mm -hmm. Trying to translate my feelings of having just come back from the third class compartment party, and it all came out at the, at the same time. The rhythm, the chords on the guitar, and and the lyrics. It all came out at the same time. That one. Beautiful. It's beautiful when it happens. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It feels it feels like magic when it happens. I I thought it was pretty good, but that once again at that time it was one of the reasons why I felt that I had to leave the Hollies because they didn't like Marrakesh Express. Wow. Somewhere wow. in the bowels of EMI, there's a tape of uh, just the track of the Hollies doing Marrakesh Express, but there's no, there's no train in there. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, want, I, wanted a, I wanted that yeah. kind of a rhythm train, uh, which Br Stephen brilliantly did on, on the record when he put those uh, what sound like trumpets in, in harmony there, you know. But that's Stephen. So beautiful. Because... Uh, it was David that once again saved my life in a way because mm. the worst thing you can do to a writer is give him self-doubt. When you say something that questions his you know, veracity, that's awful to do to a writer. But it was Crosby that said, wait a second, let me tell you something. That's a fine song. They're the crazy ones. And it was once again another reason why I had to leave the Hollies. On a Carousel. On a Carousel is one of those songs that is completely made up and completely made up from something that we had experienced uh, when we were children on actual riding on, on a carousel and how all the horses are trying to catch up with each other, but they're stationary, of course, because they're locked into the carousel. Uh, but it was basically a, a song totally made up from nothing. It's a beauty. Ah. And um, teach your children well? 
I'd started teaching children in, in my last days in England. Basically, I, when I came to, to America, one of the things that I, that I was able to do, uh, because I was earning uh, a great deal of money at that point, was to collect photography. And I had lent, uh, I think, about 150 of, my, of the images to a show in Santa Clara in California. And I've never told any gallery owner how to hang my stuff. I'm very interested in how they would hang it because when you have a picture on a wall, it affects the way you see the next picture on the wall. And one of the images that I bought by Arnold Newman was a, a portrait of Krupp, who was a family member of the Krupp family that manufactured all the armaments for both world wars in Germany. And I realized that if we didn't teach our children a better way of dealing with each other, that humanity itself was in deep trouble. And, and that's when I got to finish Teach Your Children. The recording of it was pretty simple. It was me and Stephen on acoustic guitars and Dallas Taylor, our drummer, on tambourine. And we have made the track and we realized that it needed a solo. And Stephen said, you know, forgive me, but I'm kind of tired of doing solos. I've done a lot, I've done a lot of solos, you know. Is there any other thing that we can uh, f figure out? And Crosby said, hey, wait a second. Jerry Garcia has been learning pedal steel for the last th three months. Maybe Jerry can put pedal steel on it. So we made a, a demo, a rough mix of the track. I told David to go over to Jerry, who was in the next studio with the dead in, in, in Wally Hyders in San Francisco, and see if Jerry likes the song. And if he likes the song, does he want to put pedal steel? He loved the song. He came in, he brought his pedal steel in the studio. I played it. He played the first take. I said, fantastic. Unbelievable. That's exactly what this song needed. And Jerry said, and you know, I made a couple of mistakes. Do you mind if, if I do a second track? And I said, absolutely, you can do a second track. But I've got to tell you, I'm not going to use it. What you just <laughs> did when you were learning the song was so perfect. We did take the two two notes that were out slightly uh, wrong out of his second track, but I'm, I used that first track because it was beautiful. And I think it was, was a great uh, deal of the reason why it became such a, a big hit. Two things interesting about that story. The first one is a photograph. So another form of art that you're interested in inspires the lyric. Yes. And then the happenstance of Jerry Garcia happened to be in the next studio, happened to be learning this new instrument. David happened to know that. It's like, there's so much mm -hmm. that just, and, and you say that might, that's part of why the song is the song. Yep. It's, it's an amazing confluence of events, so many of which that are out of our control when we're making something great Yes. That it's a marvel and to witness it happen again and again, because we've got to see this over the course of our lives over and over again. It's a true mystical experience when you see these elements come together in a way that seems almost random, but through the recognition of, oh, maybe, maybe if this with that, right, maybe that'll work. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing, because, you know, we were finding our way through music, but always keeping in mind what is right for the track. 
and Jerry's uh, solo at the beginning and, and the solo in the middle, of course, uh, was just perfect for the track. And he'd done it in one take. And Amazing. I, I love one takes. I'm I'm I, I'm with Neil on the, on that thing. I love when you've done a song in the studio, of, you know, twenty times, it loses something, you know. And I've been lucky enough to uh, to recognize when it's right. Agree a hundred percent. And to argue the opposite point, Beatles did a lot of takes, and I really like those records. Yes, that, <laughs> yes, that's true. So yeah, but you know. There's probably Beatles songs that were done in one take, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think if we listened to them, we wouldn't say the one-take songs are necessarily better than the ones that... No. More effort. It's like whatever's right for... Like, you're taking care of each song in the way that's best for that song, whatever that is. Right. If it's one take, great. Yep. And if it's trying it many times until you find the way, it's like, we don't know. We, we can't know. No. But we know when it's right. Absolutely. And that's the be- it's and it's the best feeling because until it's right, I always have the feeling we, we don't have a we don't have a way to make it right <laughs> until until you do can, it. Until we happen to recognize that it's already right. Yes. You can't do it in advance. That's right. And it takes courage to do that, you know. It takes courage Absolutely. to tell Jerry Garcia, you know, you know, uh, sure you can do a second track, but I'm never gonna oh, okay. They had the song that had very uh, CSN-like harmony, Uncle John's Band. Was the fact that you guys were recording next to them, did that have any impact on that song coming into existence, do you know? Undoubtedly. They would come into the studio and watch what we did and how we did it. Yeah. And then they started to do that because they, they like harmonies too, you know? Yeah, but it's such a specific thing, what Crosby, Stills & Nash does. And that's one of the few songs a non-csn song that has the makings of a csn like blend right they started to uh, to do what we did which was we'd put up a, an 87 and we'd open it up all the way around and we'd just stand the three of us and i would stand further away from the microphone than david did because i have this voice that cuts through everything <laughs> it's just the way my voice is and uh when they saw that, that we were positioning ourselves around an open microphone, they took that and, and did that. And that's how they started to record. Because normally they would put, Jerry would put his part on and then Phil would put his part on and then whoever, you know, right? In general, is there a difference between singing together versus stacking tracks? Absolutely. That, that example. Absolutely. Tell me about it. Tell me about what happens different. What happens differently is vibration. When the three of us are singing around a microphone, knowing which distance each one of us needs to be to get the blend correct, it takes work to do that. But we managed to do that totally naturally. Because we, there is a difference between when you put on a melody and, and then you double that and you put on a harmony and then you do that. But in, with individual takes, there isn't the... DNA blend of three voices hitting the air at the same time is a different sound if it's only one voice after another voice. It's fascinating because so few artists do it that way as well. So few. We could do it though. Yeah. Do you remember, did you all wear headphones when you were doing it or were you singing with your uh, no headphones? Do you remember? Yeah, I do remember. We always used headphones with just one. (laughs) 
with one, right? So that we had the, yeah. the other ear free to be able to listen to what the other guys were doing. We wouldn't put both headphones on. We would only put one side on. Understood. For the blend part of it, of knowing where you were standing, that was more based on what you were hearing in the phone, I imagine, because yes. you couldn't tell how it was affecting the mic just looking at it. Right. But then the other ear was for the the true mingling of the frequencies. Yes, exactly. In real life. Exactly, right. Because it is different. It's hard to explain how when you put on headphones, it's just different. Yes, it is. Then you have to deal with it. But we knew, we knew how to do our voices. Like I said, that sound that CSN had vocally, it was done in 45 seconds. It, w it was Amazing. nothing. It, it just bloody happened. And it happened so beautifully that I then yes. made up, I have to go to England and undo my life. I want to follow this sound. Amazing. This sound is amazing. amazing. I mean, yes, anyone can sing the same notes that we can. You can't sound like us. Yeah. We'll be back after a quick break with more from Rick Rubin and Graham Nash. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with Rick Rubin's conversation with Graham Nash. Coming from England... Did you have any sense of feeling like an outsider when you came? Absolutely. Did you feel different than the other people? Yeah. But I was an outsider that had a, a history of knowing how to make hit records. 
because I'd been in yes. the Hollies for what seven years, and like I said, we had fifteen or so top ten records. So I, it's, I came. I was an outsider, but I came with a certain weight. Yes, and you came post British invasion, where yep. <laughs> basically all of the music being made in California at that time, in what's one form or another, seemed to be influenced by what was going on in England. Yeah. We were amazed in England that we would take American songs and sing them with a, a kind of a British accent and sell them back to the Americans. That was weird to us, but uh, yeah. it's what we did. You know, because you, yeah. you'd have somebody that was in the merchant navy, you'd have a, a brother or a cousin or somebody, and they would go to America and they were musicians, so they would bring records back. So we were hearing all the, the miracles and uh, Barrett Strong and all, all these really strange rhythm and blues things that hadn't hit the charts in England. And uh, yeah, the British invasion, what a strange thing that was. Yeah, we're making all this American music and singing it with a British accent and selling it right back to the Americans. This is amazing. Yeah, I think there's something about, I, I think it's more than just singing it with a British accent. I think the romantic view from a distance allows a different interpretation, not even just in the accents, but even in the way the music's approached. Right. It, it's like we can use the example of Led Zeppelin and the American blues that it's based on. No American blues man would take it to such bombastic it w it would be unseemly to do what led zeppelin did right from the blues master perspective yet they were taking this fantasy from a distance in the same way that Sergio Leone, you know, made the spaghetti <laughs> westerns that were different than the western westerns. That's right. It's like seeing it from a distance can give you a romantic vision of it that's bigger than the reality of the situation. Absolutely, yeah. It feels like the Hollies had that. It's like, yes, there was the influence of the American music, but it didn't sound like the American music because no. you guys were different and your That's life experience right. was different. Right, and we'd all, we'd all learned, you know, from Skiffle. You know, we'd all learned from, from early folk music and, and we started out in, in dance halls and we wanted to make music that people could dance to and we wanted to make them think too. And why not do both things at the same time? But uh, yeah, the Hollies did have a certain sound that was different than American bands, that's for sure. And let's talk about Skiffle a little bit because that was not something that happened in the United States. No. Or at least it didn't happen as being called Skiffle. Tell me about Skiffle. <laughs> there was an Irish folk singer called Lonnie Donegan, and he went to America and he, uh, he witnessed Lead Belly and he, he, he witnessed all these blues people and how s simple it was, uh, Big Bill Brunsey just on acoustic guitar, and, and he brought that music back with him from America. So now you have to think of, okay, in the late 50s, it was only 10 years since World War II happened. And there was nothing that 15- and 16-year-old kids could do, particularly in, in where I lived. You know, there was nothing to do, really. Uh, you, you had a ball you could kick around or play cricket with, you know. But there was, no, there was no music because we couldn't afford it. 
And then Skiffle came along where if you had a cheap acoustic guitar and you created a bass from a tea chest box with a pole and a string that you could boom, 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 play the bass. And for the drums, you would put thimbles on your right hand if you're right-handed. And we had a washboard, which is an instrument that your grandmother used to wash clothes with. And it go... And so it was simple. It was cheap. We could afford to do that. And we, all of a sudden, we had something to do. And we followed it directly. We loved skiffle. And it started the background of, of our musical journey. And Lonnie Donegan uh, is very famous in, in England. I mean, ask anybody, you know, they all know who Lonnie Donegan was because he was very important in the, in the creation of music in England. I guess the closest approximation we had in the United States would have been jug band music, which wasn't particularly popular. It was more of an, a tiny regional fringe movement. Yes. So Lonnie Donegan must have seen that. I had no idea that the roots of Skiffle were rooted in American music. I oh, never yeah. would have guessed that. No, no, they were. I never would have guessed that. Directly. Fascinating. Yeah. I have one more song to ask about, so I'll ask about it before I go on. Okay. The next song to ask about is Just a Song Before I Go, which was the biggest hit of the band. Yeah. If I knew it was going to be such a big hit, I'd have written a better song. <laughs> um, just a song which uh, started very simply. It was me on piano. I had been to England to, to visit my mother who wasn't feeling too well uh, and she was in hospital. And during that visit, I stood on the steps of the Midland Hotel in, in Manchester. That was the same steps that uh, Alan and I had met the Everly Brothers in, in 1962. Wow. And uh, I was standing on the steps of the Midland Hotel and I was watching people come and go. I realized that half of them didn't like their job, didn't like their boss, hated work, but had to do it, digging graves, doing whatever it is they had to do. And I realized that, why me? Why did I leave and, and become famous when I, I knew a lot of musicians that, that were better than me that weren't famous, you know? It, it was really strange. Anyway. I took a small vacation. Me and David and Stephen were in the studio in Los Angeles making a record. We decided to take a small break from each other. I went to Hawaii, and I went to the home of a friend of mine, acquaintance really, uh, named Spider, and he was a drug dealer, just marijuana. And I had, a, you know, about an hour and a half, two hours before I had to catch a plane back to the studio. And uh, as I got up to leave, he said, wait a second, you're supposed to be some big shot songwriter. I bet you can't write a song just before you go. I said, what? He said, I'll bet you can't write a song just, just before you go, right now. I said, how much? He said, $500. I said, $500? I sat down and I wrote just a song before I go. In an hour and 20 minutes. It was amazing. And in terms of an incredible circle, on my last tour, at the end of a show, I'm leaving, and a lady gives me a small envelope. I put it in my back pocket, and I forgot about that I had it there. I'm getting dressed the next morning, and I realize I have an envelope that I haven't opened. And I opened it up, and guess what was inside? A check for $500 from the family of the kid that made me write the song in the first place. They realized that he was a dealer, that he probably hadn't paid me, and they were going to pay me, and they did. Wow. 
I, d- I didn't cash. I didn't story. cash the check, of course. It, no, it's an incredible story. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, and what a great song. So that's a song that you wrote on a challenge. Yes, T- a total challenge. Yeah. So it shows it can come from anywhere. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be because it wasn't some st- lightning bolt hit you and this magic song came out. No, it was a five hundred dollar bet before yep. you were flying off. Yeah, this kid's not going to beat me for five hundred dollars. That's for sure. Unbelievable. <laughs> and he, he sent me the original lyrics. Actually, the original wow. piece of paper that I wrote it on, which I have. Fantastic. Tell me about Nash Editions. Okay. I got a a Mac computer in 1982 or something, very early. You could actually scan things. It was called a thunder scan. And it it moved across the image and it transferred all the information into the computer. And I was getting interesting images on the screen. I couldn't get them off the screen in a way that satisfied me. I tried photographing them. I tried inkjet prints. I tried thermal prints. And I couldn't get them off the screen. So this friend of mine, Charles Werenberg in San Francisco, who was a scientist, called me one day and he said, hey, have you, have you seen this uh, printer that Fuji are putting out? And I said, no. And I, he gave me the name of, of the master printer in Los Angeles that was working the machine. I went to see it, check it out. It was incredible. You know, though, when you're standing uh, waiting to go into the cinema and you see those posters for the upcoming shows? Well, this machine was made to do that. Cheap paper, but great color. So I found out someone who was using the machine and went down to check it out with my friend Mac. And I saw this machine, which was looks like a small refrigerator, but it has a hood that you lift it up and it has a, a drum that you attach the paper to and it spins, you know, a million miles an hour. And these four print heads are spraying ink at it as it's going round. That sounds weird. It's going round at 12 miles an hour and, and you're spraying ink on it and it's turning out like this. It was $125,000 for the printer. I bought it immediately. Wow. And I wanted the machine to do what I wanted it to do. I wanted thicker paper. I had to move the print heads a little further away because of the thickness of the paper. So I had to void the warranty within the first 10 minutes. And I didn't care because I was forcing this machine that I had seen make this photograph-looking print I wanted it to do black and white and fantastic stuff, purely for me. Yes. And then we decided that uh, in 89 that we would open this up as, as Nash Editions and be the first portfolio uh, maker in, in, in the world to do uh, black and white pr- inkjet prints. And not only that, but we got a beautiful medal from the Smithsonian Institution. And my first printer is in the Smithsonian Museum, in the American History Museum. Incredible. It was funny. I was having sushi in Boston once, and uh, a couple of people recognized me, and I I took no notice of that. And as I'm leaving, this lady shouts out, Hey, Graham! And I'm expecting, Where's Neil? You know, Who did you screw last night? What color socks do you have on? And all she said was, Great Prince! And I went, Wow, okay. You've made it. (laughs) I've made it. It's another beautiful story where you're making something for yourself and it's so good that you open it up to the world to participate because 
that's how good it is. It's the same with all my songs. I only write songs for me. I don't write for yeah. anybody else, just me. But if you like the song and you want to do it, fantastic. Now it's a CSN song. We have to take another quick break, and then we'll be back with more from Graham Nash. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Graham Nash. I read a story, I don't know if this is true, maybe apocrypha, that there was a CSN reunion in Sausalito in 1974, and the band ended up breaking up during those sessions over an argument over a harmony note choice. Does that ring true? Yep. Do you mind talking about it? Yeah, there there were two times it happened. Once in my house in San Francisco, uh, Stephen had this song that I was putting my harmony on, and he wanted me to sing a minor set of changes through a major chord on the track. And I I have to admit, I I think I'm pretty good at what I do as a harmony singer. 
and my body couldn't do it. I could not. Yeah. Every time I came to the chorus where he, he wanted me to sing in a minor, minor thing through a major set of changes, I couldn't. I, my body couldn't do it. Uh, and Stephen got so angry that he, uh, we had just mixed uh, my song "Wind on the Water" and gotten a master two track of it, and he sliced it up with a razor blade. <laughs> uh, yeah. And another time it happened, and I think it's the Salsalito one that you're referring to. We were playing a song of David's called Homeward Through the Haze. Very beautiful song. And for some reason, one of the bass parts was was not quite right. And uh, we began arguing about whether it was right or whether it was not. And uh, all of a sudden, I look over to where Neil was sitting, and Neil wasn't there. He just left. He just gone. Amazing. The same happened uh, when we were making uh, the record in, in uh, Fort Lauderdale. I, I'd have been having breakfast with Neil every day at the hotel, right? And I, for some reason, he's not there at 10 o'clock. And I call the front desk. I said, has Mr. Young been around? They said, yeah, and he, he left this morning for San Francisco. I said, we're, wait, we're in the middle of making... It's Neil. Amazing. He was gone. And that's when I wrote uh, a song called Mutiny. <laughs> it's funny in the different examples it was always a crosby song <laughs> yeah yeah beautiful song though yeah an amazing writer david was an amazing writer i mean uh, his sense of combining these strange guitar tunings with a jazz feel made him a completely unique musician yeah. i don't know anybody that writes music like crosby it's interesting hearing you tell the story of Marrakesh Express and it being inspired by the beat poets and essentially the uh, drug culture. And while there's a tremendous emphasis on drug use in Crosby, Stills and Nash, you're usually viewed as the grounded straight person, or that's the perception in the outside world, is that the other two guys are off the rails so it's interesting to hear that you were also uh, a participant. Yeah. With Crosby, I mean, I tried everything. I tried not taking any drugs. I tried taking more drugs than he was taking. Um, <laughs> I tried everything. But, you know, having, having been in the Hollies and had all these uh, success, I, I, I was kind of stable, and I knew what, we, what was best for us. And I've always kept the music for, in the forefront of my mind, and uh, I've always been the one that, that says, you know, wait a second, if something's wrong, let's figure out a way where we can all win. And I've always been that kind of person since I was a kid. Tell me about one, one of my favorite vocal performances is not on one of your albums and i only recently found out that it's you singing and that's on donovan's song happiness runs uh, yes i love the song and i use that outro as a reference for musicians all the time talking about what interesting arrangements you could do vocally don't think of it just as the lead voice right here's an example of the vocals are the whole thing and the yeah. relationship between the different vocals. Right. Tell me how that came about and the writing of it and everything about it. Donovan was the man that taught me how to play finger picker guitar. I, I couldn't do it before he showed me how to do it. And he was a big fan of mine and he knew that the Hollies were uh, not happening in my mind. Anyway, he played me this song, Happiness Runs. 
And I realized that it was a perfect example of a round, meaning you could go happiness runs in a happiness runs in a happiness runs. You know, you can make a round of it. Yes, like row, row, row your boat. That's exactly. the famous round that most people know. Right. And yeah, it was very easy to do. We did it in, in 10 minutes. Really easy. Because it was, the song was there. We just had to make yeah. it sound more interesting than it was. It's great. And that vo- the interaction of the vocals at the end make the whole thing. I absolutely love it. Great. Oh, this is interesting. I've seen footage of Crosby, Stills, and Nash playing at Esalen in Big Sur. And Esalen was sort of a, a hippie capital and uh, the birth of the human potential movement took place there. So it was a forward-thinking place, lots of young people, naked hot springs. Yes. And interestingly, Crosby, Stills, and Nash show up with these D45 very expensive guitars, the most expensive guitar you could buy from Martin, and wearing fur coats into this peace and love hippie world. And... It's a wild juxtaposition. And just wanted to ask you, what do you remember about that? Did thought go into it? A- a- tell me everything. Esalen was exactly how you described, particularly the, the hot tubs and the naked ladies. <laughs> Joni was there that, that time, and she had a song uh, that she used to end her, her shows with uh, called Get Together. And we, w- we would casually get up there and sing and she didn't mind you know at all because it, she knew how good we were you know so if we got up there to sing it was going to be okay and it was like a gang sing at the end you know but what i remember most about esalen is that uh, Joni and i were, were growing more apart by the minute and there's a photograph of me and Joni explaining each other to each other uh, that somebody took that is a perfect example of what it was that I was feeling uh, during that excellent thing because uh, Joni and I were were, were breaking up, basically. Hmm. Tell me about David Blue. It's all over now. David (laughs) Blue was was a fine songwriter in New York City. At the same time that Dylan was was upcoming, David Blue was upcoming. I liked his songs. I brought him uh, to my studio in uh, in San Francisco and recorded a, a great album with him called Nice Baby and the Angel. In my book of photographs that I put out recently, there's a photograph of David Blue and he's smoking a cigarette, but he has a cigarette in each hand, and that was David Blue. Mm-hmm. He was a man that felt that he didn't get enough dues because uh, this other guy, Bob Dylan, was taking most of the headlines, even though David uh, felt that he was already... uh, Maybe Dylan took his name and it's all over now, baby blue, you know, who knows? But David David was a nice man. Do you know anything about Leonard Cohen's relationship with David Blue? No. Interesting that Leonard Cohen always had a feeling, the, the way that David Blue felt as it related to Bob, Leonard had some feeling that the relationship between him and David Blue, like maybe why isn't it David Blue and why is it me? You know, like like he he didn't understand. It was the opposite side of the David Blue story of why do I have the success versus David Blue? 
like almost like imposter syndrome. Yeah. And then, and David was very cognizant of that. He understood that he was being completely shadowed. But he was a decent songwriter, and I, I, uh, I enjoyed that album that I made with him. Beautiful. In one of the stories I read about Crosby, Stills, and Nash reunion attempts, it happened in the famous studio in Miami. Oh, yeah, Criteria. Yeah, Criteria. What, what was it? about criteria in the 70s that drew so many artists? First of all, uh, it's a great studio. There's a great sound in the studio, uh, and that's why a lot of artists got there. But also, there were two ladies that provided a service that was great. You could rent a house, and they would do all the cooking, and they would clean all the beds and do all all that stuff. And that's what, exactly what we did. That's what Eric had done previously one on his album. And so that combination of not being in Hollywood and being in a sunny, yes. but being in a sunny place with with the same kind of freedoms, and, and Criteria had a great sound, and uh, we took advantage of it for sure. Beautiful, because I always wondered, because Miami was not really a hot spot at that point in time, but so many great artists all were traveling there, and I never really knew what the draw was. But that's interesting that there was like a live-in situation yes, that you could go off and make a record and everything would be taken care of besides you being in the studio making the music. Right, and as you say, it was out of the way. It wasn't Hollywood. Yeah. You know, it wasn't yes. New York. It was completely out of the way in terms of why why Miami, but it was the combination of, of a sound of the studio itself and, and yes. the availability of being able to rent a house where you didn't have to think. Tell me about Judy Sill. Judy was a very interesting woman. I think she was a brilliant composer, I think that she wasn't pretty enough to be a Joni Mitchell kind of long, blonde hair, folk singing kind of thing. She opened up uh, on a tour that David and I did for about two or three weeks. She would often drive uh, in the car with David and I. She was uh, darkly funny. And the more she told us about her life, uh, the more amazing she got. She told us she used to, you know, she was a hooker at one point, uh, but her love of music was undeniable. And she loved a a particular guitar that I had. It was a Martin D28, and uh, at the end of the tour, I gave it to her. But uh, Judy was a a really interesting uh, woman, and I think that a lot of people are now being turned on to her music. I recorded a, a, a song with her called Jesus Was a Crossmaker. I thought that that might be a radio hit, but that's the only track that I ever produced for Judy. But it was a good, a good creative experience. Yes, very much so. I only uh, got turned on to her recently and find the music very, very beautiful. Yes, she was a, a fine, profound songwriter. How do you think the last chapter of your father's life impacted your choices going forward in life? A great deal. My father went to jail for about a year for a camera that he had bought from a friend of his at work, and the police came to the door and wanted to know who it was who sold it to him. My father wouldn't, uh, wouldn't tell them, and he ended up in a jail for uh, a year, and he died at 46. It, it affects my life uh, in, in the following way. I always 
cheer for the underdog. I'm always uh, championing uh, the, the team that's not supposed to win. And a very interesting thing happened to me. I'd written a song called The Prison Song, and the first verse is about my father. I was in Granada Television in Manchester. I was doing a show, and I was singing that song. Also on the show, on tape, was the judge that sentenced my father to prison. You must believe that I was in a very strange state of mind. Nobody else knew except me. Nobody knew. I don't even know how to process it. What? T- tell me, um, did you want to leave? Did you want, yeah. I, I, I wanted to get to him and... You know, tell him off for for doing that. I mean, I, I wrote a ridiculous thing to to even think of doing. But he was on tape, and he wasn't available to for me to, to converse with him. But what a strange event! Me singing the song about my father in prison with the judge that put him in prison. Unbelievable! Did you grow up in Manchester or Blackpool? I was born in Blackpool. I lived I lived in a, uh, in Salford, which is a one of the slums of England, which is a suburb of Manchester. But during uh, the World War II, uh, they would evacuate all the pregnant ladies outside the bombing area to have their children in peace, and that's that's why I ended up being born in Blackpool, which I I never lived there. Uh, I was just born there. Understood. I actually quite uh, a few years ago took my, uh, two of my sons into that room and I ended up I, I started I went into the hotel uh, which is on the front in, in Blackpool and I looked at the, the guy that was in the front desk and I said I have a really strange question he said it's you go around Dana it's down right down the stairs <laughs> I said how did you know that he said listen a lot of you come here and he wanted anyway he pointed me to the room and there was the room and I'm, I'm breathing in the room in which I took my first breath wow amazing so cool I know so my life cool. is full of this yeah magic we, we're blessed we are blessed indeed we are well, tell me about living in New York is this the first time you've ever lived in New York yes I'd, I'd been to New York many times, you know, sometimes for a couple of days, sometimes for a couple of weeks, and I couldn't wait to get out of here. What changed? Um, what changed is I, I divorced my wife, Susan, after 37 years of marriage. We were not in love. It was totally over. We divorced. I'm playing a show with, with, uh, with David and Stephen at the Beacon here in New York City, and... Amy and I shook hands, and I believe at that point I knew what I needed to do. I needed to uh, find out more about this woman, find out who she is, what she does. And every question I, I asked myself, she answered in total brilliance. She's a brilliant artist, and I wish now that I had been strong enough to realize earlier that my marriage to Susan was over and I should have been living in New York for 20 years. And this is an incredible city. I've said it before, but I one of the things that I love about it is hearing five different accents on the way to get a cup of coffee, you know. And then the, when you add the galleries, and, 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 and you know, this is a fantastic city. And I wish I'd have been here for many years, but I have been here for at least eight now. 
Amazing. Yeah. Amazing and beautiful that you got to meet your partner after all these years and after being in an unhappy situation for a long time. Yeah. It's, um, it's, again, a blessing. Don't forget the opening line of my album. I yeah. used to think that I could never love again, but I did. I found it yeah. again. Don't screw it up. I'm trying my best. I real. I mean, I am trying my best. I mean, living with some with another person is difficult. It's full of compromises. But I, I'm learning every day, and she's teaching me everything that I thought I knew. Beautiful. Congratulations. Thank you. Can't wait for the new album. Thank you so much for doing this. I loved talking to you. I loved seeing you, and can't wait till we get to hug in person. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. You're welcome, kid. Thanks again to Graham Nash for sharing stories from his magical life with us. His new album now is out in May. In the meantime, you can hear all of our favorite Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and sometimes Why songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, and Eric Sandler. Our editor is Sophie Crane. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com.